0: Up, Stonebridge. How are you guys? I'm really grateful to Michael Easley for the invitation to come and be with you. Um, for what it's worth, Michael was my favorite president at Moody Bible Institute. It's not a veiled criticism of anybody else. I just want to make that clear. Um, and I don't expect him to remember this, but on a couple of different occasions and Moody weeks up at Maranatha Bible Camp in Michigan. He was a speaker, and I was a speaker, and we had some really sweet fellowship times with him and with Cindy. Again, I don't expect him to remember that. He was famous, and so I remember it, but I'm not famous, and so why would he remember it? Anyway, so um, it's really great to be here with you guys and to see them. All right, grab your Bibles. Go to Romans chapter 1. And as you're going, let me just sort of pose a problem to you where there is disagreement and confusion and confusion these days, and so here's the problem. Let's suppose somebody lives in a remote part of the world where they could never hear the gospel of Jesus. They don't have scripture. They don't have access to radio or television or even cell phones, and and so they never hear about anything. When they die, what happens to them? More and more, apparently, about half of the evangelicals in the world, and evangelicals, that's you and me, at least the evangelicals in America, would say when that person dies, he goes to heaven. Because why would God send somebody to hell who would never have had the chance to hear the gospel and get saved? And there is more and more indication that evangelicals are beginning to think that. John Piper, in a very interesting book, and Piper doesn't believe that, but he writes against that understanding, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, he talks about, he cites a couple of different scholars who believe that, that when a person who doesn't have a chance to hear the gospel dies, they go to heaven. John R. W. Stott says... I believe the most Christian stance is to remain agnostic on this question. The fact is that God, along with the most solemn warnings about our responsibility to respond to the gospel, has not revealed how he will deal with those who have never heard it. Two individuals who edited a book entitled Through No Fault of Their Own, William V. Crockett and James Seguntas, right? Those who hear and reject the gospel are lost. And those who do embrace the light of general revelation must be willing to turn from their dead idols to serve the living God. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1.9, taken out of context, I might say. General revelation then creates in them a desire to reject their pagan religion. It does not help them see the saving significance of their own. And so the idea is if they respond correctly to the light of God in creation, what could be known about God from creation, they respond correctly to that, they're redeemed, they're justified. When they die, God will let them into heaven. Now, if we believe that, what does that do to the motivation for Christian missions? And I'll show you why, why that's an issue. If we believe that, and we send missionaries to this remote group, wherever it might be, and they hear the gospel clearly from the missionaries and reject Christ, then their eternity is sealed and they are doomed. But if we never send missionaries to them, there's always the hope that they might respond correctly to the light of God in creation and that when they pass away, God will just let them into heaven. If we believe that, We had better never send missionaries. And so any sort of enthusiasm for the missionary endeavor is just going to go away. That, my friend, is a major problem. And we're going to find that in point of fact, Scripture is clearer on this issue than many people tend to think. And so we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 1 and the first part, last part of Romans 1, first part of chapter 2 and take a look at the answer. But before we do that, the first thing I would like you to do is I want you to go to Romans chapter 3. And then we're going to go right back to Romans 1. Just to make it very clear that while we're talking especially about people in Romans chapter 1 and first part of chapter 2, while we're talking about people who don't have the Bible, they don't hear the gospel. That nevertheless, Paul is, what, what Paul's going to say here in chapter 1 and chapter 2 is true for everybody in the entire world. He concludes his introductory section of Romans with these words. Take a look at chapter 3 of Romans, verse 19. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, that's the law of Moses. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Notice, how many mouths are closed here? How many? You can speak, you can talk back to me every my my nasb says every mouth may be closed and how much of the world may be accountable to god all the world so we're talking about everybody everywhere whether they have scripture or not now the apostle paul in chapter 1 verse 18 go back to chapter 1 now if you would please chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 2 verse 16 The Apostle Paul is going to say that believers need to get the gospel out to others because everybody is under the wrath of God and needs the salvation offered in Jesus. And he's going to talk about really bad people need to hear the gospel, but even good people, not Christians, but even good people, they also need to hear the gospel. And so he starts out, first of all, by talking about how, of course, really bad people are under God's wrath. We, all of us, would anticipate... The idea that Adolf Hitler is under the wrath of God. Really bad people are under his wrath. And so he says that there is a wrath of God. He just presents the truth of this wrath against bad people. Verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Okay, so let's just stop there. We have the fact of this. The wrath of God is not a really super popular topic these days, but it's mentioned 500 times, over 500 times in the Old Testament and repeatedly in the New Testament, including here. And notice that the wrath of God is a fact against those who suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. That is, unrighteously they suppress it. Now, we're going to do a tiny word study here. The word... Suppress is a word that means to stifle, to prevent, to hinder, to restrain people in remote areas. Now, these people don't have scripture because they're looking only at the light of God in creation. So they don't have scripture. They're in a remote area. So here's, the, here's how, how it is with them. And just to sort of illustrate the point of the word suppress I want you to imagine with me that you jump into the deep end of a swimming pool, and I toss you a beach ball, and I ask you to press the beach ball under the water in the pool. Now, to press the beach ball down, if I spoke Greek and if you spoke Greek, I might use this word "suppress." That is, these people suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness, okay? Now, because we're told that there are people who love physical learning, I want you to suppress the beach ball, to press the beach ball under the water. What you're gonna do is you're gonna put your hand and cup it at about eye level. Everybody or I will use harsh language on you. Put, put, put your hand, and now, now what are we gonna do with the beach ball? We're gonna hold it down under the water. We're going to press it down. That was special. (laughs) Let's do do it again. Let's do it again. We got the beach ball, right? Guess what people who don't have Scripture and only have knowledge of God from creation, guess what they do with that knowledge? Show me. This is what they do with it. Now, If we have knowledge of God, and Paul's gonna indicate, I think, that, that people do, it might not be very much. It might be this much. Hold up your fingers that far apart. It might be this much. The problem is, what does the whole world do with that, apart from Jesus? What do they do with that? They do this. You do not take knowledge of God and disregard it ignore it suppress it reject it without that being a sin if people don't if people do that with the bible then of course we'd say well yeah they're sinners but even a person who has knowledge of god if it's even only this much even only that much this is what they do with it and that makes them sinners That's a very important thing to keep in mind because of where he's going to go here in just a little bit. So he has mentioned that there is wrath of God against people. And then he talks about the reasons for this wrath against people, verses 19 to 23. Here's the first thing about this. There's knowledge of God. And so Paul begins now to explain and justify the statement that people suppress the truth of God. He says in verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And then verse 20, he explains now how it is that the people, we could say that God made it evident to them so they have knowledge of Him. Since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So that they are without excuse. And so when a person looks at creation, they can have some idea of God who made this. God must be bigger than the earth or maybe the cosmos. That God must be an orderly God. That God is a God of variety and so he's put color in here instead of having it all be shades of gray. And all kinds of other things. We could say that God is a good God because he provides us with things that we need, like food and water and shelter and family and all of these other kinds of things. We could say quite a bit about God. The problem is, is even the little bit that they can know about God, they reject it. And they are without excuse. That is on the day of judgment, God's going to say, you knew stuff about me and you rejected me. People can't say, I didn't know anything about you. No, they had knowledge of him. Even if it's just a tiny bit, even the tiny bit they reject. And so not only is there knowledge of God, but there's a rejection of it. We already touched on that. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Isn't that an interesting phrase? They didn't give thanks. Now, we wouldn't think of Thanklessness toward God as being a major sin. But the proper approach and attitude of a creature is to express gratitude to the Creator for all of His kindness that He has done toward us. But, it says, they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be, uh, professing to be wise They became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. You know, we live in a culture where people would call themselves brilliant And Paul would say they're foolish. I don't know if you've ever heard of Stephen Hawking, who was a great British physicist, um, died I think in 2017 or 2018. There was a movie made about him, which I haven't seen. But in 2010, he co-authored a book entitled The Grand Design. And Stephen Hawking, who is not a Christian, says on page 180 in that book, and pages around that, but 180, He says, the universe created itself from nothing. He doesn't have a category for God, refuses to believe that there's a God. I want to think about that just for a second. When a physicist like him says the universe creates itself, you kind of go, ooh, universe created itself from nothing. Now, sitting out in the parking lot out here is a really cool dark gray 2017 Ford Mustang. It's my car. <laughs> That's the good news I have a Mustang. Bad news is it only has four cylinders. <laughs> now my car is the, the most base model that you can get. The only the only you know add-on was an automatic transmission. Um but it's a fairly complex machine. You know. Now, if somebody were to ask me, where did that car come from? If I were to say, it created itself from nothing, my Ford Mustang, created itself from nothing. Anybody I would say that to would go, yeah, what have you been smoking, Van Laningham? What a stupid thing to say. But in point of fact, that's what people say about the universe. You leave God out, then you become foolish. And you say things like that. How could the universe create itself from nothing? First of all, there's nothing from which it can put things together to create. There's nothing. And then in addition, you can't create yourself. There has to be somebody or something who comes before the thing that's created in order to give rise to the thing that's created. Guess what? That's God. And yet, when you let go of the truth of God, you become foolish in your speculations and your mind is darkened. Uh, The very witty Roman Catholic um, writer and and author, G.K. Chesterton, it's ascribed to him that he said, when people stop believing in God they don't then believe nothing, they will believe anything. Isn't that interesting? And that's what we have here at Reflected, I think. And so we, we're, we're in an age where there are futile speculations. So, we have seen that there is a truth of God's wrath against really bad people. And the reasons for it is because there's knowledge of God, but there's it's rejected. And here's the third thing about all this. How is God's wrath revealed against really bad people? And this is verses 24 to 32. I'm gonna go very quickly here and kind of summarize. It says, first of all, God gives them over to religious impurity. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Please note, when people in a remote area who have only the light of God and creation, when they reject that, notice that that not only makes them a sinner, you don't reject knowledge of God and not be a sinner, but also then you slide into idolatry. I wanna suggest that this person who lives in this poor remote area And and we we tend to think, well, if he just responds correctly to the light of God in creation, that person, according to Paul, does not exist. Because they suppress the truth of of God in unrighteousness. And so what does God do? God says, you want to go be on your own? Then you're going to go out and do some religiously impure things that ultimately are self-destructive. And so many of the religions of the world are harmful for people, even Islam. Islam in the West, nice religion. Ask the women who live in Afghanistan how nice Islam is. Also, God gives them over to degrading passions. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural, And in the same same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. This is the homosexuality passage. Here's the thing I want you to notice, is that homosexuality, like religious impurity, and like, in the third, third point, verses 28 to 32, God gives people over to social problems. I don't know how else to say it. He gives them over to social problems. Well, if social problems are not good, and if they indicate God's displeasure, and if religious impurity also indicates his displeasure, it's a form of his judgment, then that's the case with homosexuality as well. Homosexuality, when it's given safe harbor in a people group, is an indication of God's displeasure and his judgment. It is not some morally neutral lifestyle alternative or something. And so God turns him over says, look, you wanna live without me? Then you're gonna live without me and it will sicken you and it will ruin you. So the sin itself becomes the punishment. Now that's bad guys. We would expect this to be the case. Notice that the bad guys have quite a lot of ugliness in their life. But even good guys are under the wrath of God, too. And what we're talking about in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, is that there was in the Greco-Roman world a whole segment of society that really strove to live a very high moral life. Not Christians. Now, we're not talking about believers, but they just tried to live a really good moral life. Even they are under God's wrath because even they are sinners. And so, even, even good guys are under the wrath of God. Paul says, first of all, the good guy is not consistent or objective about his own spiritual condition. First of all, he does what the bad guy does. Therefore, you have no excuse. We come back to the idea of no excuse, no excuse on the day of judgment. Every one of you who passes judgment, now we're talking about people who live a high moral life, looking at bad people and going, these people are really bad. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Even a person who tries to live a really good high moral life fails on occasion and does the same bad stuff as a really bad person. And yet they think that they're going to escape God's judgment but they're not going to. In verse three, he says in verse two, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. That is when a really moral person does really bad things and they do on occasion, they're gonna get the judgment of God too, just like a really bad person. In verses three to five, he indicates that, Paul indicates that the really good person will receive what the bad guy receives. Do you suppose this, oh man and woman, When you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. That's exactly what they think. They believe that because they strive to live a high moral life, that God goes, good job, you get a pass, no judgment for you, because you want to live, it's not the case. You think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. See, a person who lives a really really upright life, let's say a person who tries to live, in our terminology, a good Judeo-Christian moral ethic without trusting Christ as Savior, they don't have the ugliness in their life that somebody who's really bad might have. See, God will not put upon them the kinds of things we find in chapter one. In this life, they won't have the kind of ugliness, that sort of judgment of God that somebody who's really bad will have, but that doesn't mean that they're going to escape the judgment of God in the end. Doesn't mean that. And so because of your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So the good guy is not consistent He thinks really bad people are going to be judged, but when he does some of those same things, he thinks God's not going to judge him. In addition, the good guy does not understand God, verses 6 through 11. And here's what they don't understand about God, that God judges based on one's deeds. God says in verse 6, God will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but those who are selfishly ambitious, verse 8, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And you're reading that and you're going, wait, 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 wait. That sounds like Paul says you can be saved by your works. You can be, and here's how you do it. As long as you live a good life all the time and never sin, then when you die, God will let you into heaven. i want to say that again. As long as you live a good life all the time, and never sin, when you die, God will justify you. He'll let you into heaven. The problem is, nobody can live a good life all the time and never sin. That's the problem. But if a person could, God would justify them. Now, just in case, you're getting ready to douse me in gasoline and strike a match because I'm a heretic. I don't believe in salvation by works, simply because nobody can live that way. But if you could, God would justify you. But notice he also says that if you sin, if you do evil things, verse eight, To those who are selfishly ambitious, don't obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, God will render to them wrath and indignation. But here's the the point. He's focusing on the importance of what one does. The key in the Greco-Roman world is not having a high moral code. It's living it. It's doing it. It's not just approving it. It's not just aspiring to it. It's not just believing it. It's not just wanting it. It depends on what you do with it. And here, even really good people, if you press them, will say they don't always do their high morality. If they don't, then they're sinners. So now we've got people who are sinners because they have knowledge of God, even a little bit, and they reject it. Because of that rejection, then they slide into immorality and to idolatry, and now we've got really moral people who still mess up and sin, and so they're not innocent. In addition, not only is the good guy not consistent, he thinks he's going to escape God's judgment when he does bad things like a really bad person. The good guy also doesn't understand God, that God actually judges you based upon what you do, not what you applaud in terms of a moral code. But here, third as well, the good guy is a sinner. Even if they don't have scripture, even if they don't know the gospel, they're still sinners. And Paul unpacks how that could be the case. Good guys sin when they violate their moral code, he says in verses 12 to 14. Look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law, that's Gentiles. In this particular passage, in a remote area, who don't have the word of God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Look, that person who lives in a remote area, he doesn't have the law. If he sins, he's going to perish even though he doesn't have the law. They're not going to die and God lets them into heaven. They're in big trouble. For all who have sinned without the law, and here again we're talking about the law of Moses. By the way, we think the law of Moses is 10 commandments. It's 613. And some of us should go, oh no. And so if you ever encounter somebody who says, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm trying to keep the Ten Commandments. Well, What about the other 603? So those who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. That's Gentiles. Those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That's the Jewish people. So now everybody's included here. For it's not the hearers of the law who are just before God. But the doers of the law will be justified. That's what he said earlier. If we did our moral code perfectly, never failed, never sinned, then we would be justified. But, of course, nobody can live that way, and so it's a moot point. Verse 14, and then he explains how Gentiles could be regarded as having sin if they don't have the law of Moses. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things of the law, These not having the law are a law to themselves. Go on to verse 15. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Let's stop there. So Gentiles don't have the law of Moses, but they do the things that the law of Moses requires. And they do it sort of instinctively. Now, because God has created us with a sense of moral right and wrong, people groups who don't have the Word of God come up with their own moral code. It's not capital L, Law of Moses, law. It's lowercase l. But their moral code that they come up with is an imperfect and marred reflection and parallel of the moral attributes of God, the moral requirements of God that we see in the law. And so people, Paul says here, they don't have the law by nature, but they are a law to themselves. Probably means they make their own moral code. They, they are, are self-regulated in ways that are moral. They have a self-generated and self-regulated moral system because on the human heart, is this sense of right and wrong now today even in the west we have all kinds of different moral codes that we live by all kinds of different ones and by we I don't mean Christians Okay, now we're talking about the non-Christian society I'm going to throw some moral codes out to you that are an imperfect reflection and parallel to the law of Moses how about this one Be nice to everyone. That's a great moral code. Here's another, treat everyone fairly. By the way, you can find these things in the law of Moses. Don't break the law. Mind your own business. Honesty is the best policy. Be tolerant of everyone. Tolerant of everyone. Unless, of course, you perceive that they are intolerant, and then you better not tolerate those who are intolerant. (laughs) One of my favorites. All things in moderation. Now, all those are great. All of those imperfectly reflect stuff that we have in the Word of God, especially the Law of Moses. Problem is, if you press somebody who claims to be living by one of those, do you actually always do that? If they're honest, what will they say? No. If they say no, and they're violating the law of God in their heart, reflected by their moral code, guess what that makes them? Sinners. That's how a Gentile in a remote area who doesn't have scripture can still be counted as a sinner. It's because he violates what he knows is right in his heart and which is reflected in the moral code of his people group, wherever it might be. It's really interesting. There's a a woman missionary named uh, Marilyn Laszlo who came and spoke to the church that we had attended before harvest in uh, April of 2006. Now, she was a single missionary for almost 30 years to the Sepik Iwam tribe, 500 miles up the Sepik River in Papua New Guinea at a place called the Hauna Village. By the way, Marilyn Laszlo, this is a true story. I was told this by people who had talked with her. She applied to be on the TV show Survivor, and they, they rejected her because they said she was overqualified. You know, this woman for 30 years lived in a grass hut and woke up every morning and started a fire by rugging two sticks together, you know, stuff like that. I mean, so, no, she's overqualified. So she was there at the Hounda village to learn the language so she could translate the Bible for them. And one of the elders of the village was assigned by the village to help her. And so one day, she called this guy John, by the way, she, and um, one day she asked him, what kinds of actions are considered wrong by your people? And he said, oh... You should absolutely never, ever kill anyone. It's wrong to lie to others. You should never, ever steal anything or sleep with another man's wife. Where would he get the Bible? That was the 6th, ninth, 8th, 7th, and 10th commandments. Where did he get that? He didn't have the Bible. It was here. And their, their village sort of adopted those as their moral code. And so they show the work of the law, the the kind of thing the law requires. It's written in their hearts. And Paul goes on to say in verse 15, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men and women. You know, you just want to be inclusive here. Secrets of men and women. Through Christ Jesus. So, on the day of judgment, guess what happens? Everybody stands before God. And their thoughts are going to say, You know what? I did pretty good on keeping a whole bunch of my moral code. I did pretty good, God. And their thoughts are going to say, But, I blew it plenty of times as well. And on the day of judgment, all that comes out. The fact that they had a moral code they tried to live by, bully for them. The fact that they didn't buy it, didn't live by it. They're doomed. So let's come back to our original question: What happens to a person in a remote area? Doesn't have the word of God, doesn't hear the gospel. When they die, do they go to heaven? And I would say, and Paul says, not if they're sinners, and we see they are. So, what does that mean for Stonebridge? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm just finding out you guys are fairly new as a church. My application for you is, as soon as you can, I hope the leadership will put together some sort of a missions ministry where you will both support missionaries who are out there, especially in unreached people groups. Support missionaries who are out there. When Stonebridge gets to the point where that's really rolling, and I understand that you guys are in the process of getting that going now, praise Jesus. Let me just encourage you, up your giving a little bit to help fund getting the gospel out to those people Because if they don't hear, they're lost. Let's pray. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to believe what Paul seems to be saying here in this passage. The people have knowledge of you, but they reject it. They don't respond right to it. They slide into idolatry. And even really good people don't live like they should, so, Lord, they're sinners. We're all sinners. We all need Jesus. We need to hear that He died on the cross for us, that He took upon Himself the punishment for the sins we've committed, and that by trusting Him alone for the forgiveness of our sins, we'll have eternal life with you. But the people need to hear that everywhere so I pray that Stonebridge, right from its relative inception, has that passion, Lord, to reach the lost. Would you bring it about, please, Lord, more and more? In Jesus' name we pray, and all the church said, amen. Amen.